Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 90, A New Hope. Today, we return to New York. It's been a while, 35 episodes in fact, since we last covered New York in episode 55, The Anglo-Dutch Wars Part 3, Revenge of the Dutch. It's probably worth doing a quick refresher. The defining feature of colonial life in New York in the mid-17th century was the dual nature of the colony between its English and Dutch elements. Centred on the city of New Amsterdam, what is now New York City, had been the centre of New Netherland, a Dutch colony which, at its peak, included Connecticut, New York, Vermont, New Jersey and Delaware. During a series of wars in the 17th century, the colony changed hands between the Dutch and the English, ultimately ending up in English hands in 1674. This was where we left things, now let's pick up the story. In the decade following the final English takeover of New York, there was a growing sense of unhappiness which spread across the colony. There were a number of different reasons for this, but the most notable was the lack of a colonial assembly. This had been a major gripe of the Dutch colonists during the New Netherland era, when the Dutch enviously eyed the political liberties their neighbours in New England were enjoying. Economic concerns also played a major role too. The colony was suffering from the presence of economic monopolies, and privileged special interests. This was all accompanied with unhappiness at levels of taxation. This ties together quite nicely with what we've seen across the other colonies. No taxation without representation. The Duke of York, the future King James II, selected Thomas Dongan to fix these problems. He was a royalist, and a former soldier who served both in Tangier for England and in France under King Louis XIV. He was, interestingly, a Roman Catholic. This led to religious toleration within the colony, but it was tempered by a sense of patriotism. He wanted what was best for the colony, and so resisted the influence of the Jesuits. Dongan arrived in New York in August 1683. It had been 11 months since he had been appointed, and the former governor was unable to do anything real while he was a lame duck, and the populace's frustrations were pent up. As soon as Dongan walked off the docks, he was met by a petition for an elected assembly. They would have been very happy to discover the instructions Dongan brought with him from the Duke of York. Quote, you are also, with advice of my council, with all convenient speed after your arrival there, in my name, to issue our writs or warrants of summons to the several sheriffs or other proper officers in every part of your said government, wherein you shall express that I have thought it fit that there shall be a general assembly of all the freeholders by the persons who they shall choose to represent them in order to consult with yourself and the said council what laws are fit and necessary to be made and established, 
and you shall issue out the said writ or summons at least 30 days before the time appointed for the meeting of the said assembly. And when the said assembly so elected shall be met at the time and place directed, you shall let them know that, for the future, it is my resolution that the said General Assembly shall have free liberty to consult and debate among themselves all matters as shall be apprehended proper to be established for laws for the good government of the said colony, and that if such laws shall be propounded as shall appear to me to be for the manifest good of the country in general and not prejudicial to me, I will assent unto and confirm them. I also authorise you to adjourn or dissolve it, as you shall see reason and cause. I do further direct you not to pass any law upon any occasion whatsoever for raising any public revenue, unless express mention be made therein that the same is levied and granted unto me. And you are as much as you lieth to take effectual care that there may be a constant establishment for raising of money sufficient to support and maintain the charge of the government of those parts, both civil and military, and are not to suffer any public money whatsoever be issued or disposed of otherwise than by a warrant under your hand, and you are not to pass any laws whereby my revenue may be remitted lessened or impaired without my especial leave or commands therein." End quote. This is how New York came to have its General Assembly, having been the only colony without one for some time. The 17 representatives met for the first time in October 1683 at Fort James, and the Charter of Liberties and Privileges was drafted, which organised the number of delegates each area of the colony would have, a number of personal freedoms and parliamentary privileges for the assembly itself. The charter was deemed acceptable by Dongan, the council, and even the Duke of York himself. It would have been an interesting development to see just how this new liberal charter would have played out, but that is something we must leave to the multiple timelines of remedial chaos theory. Podcast footnote. Yes, that was a community reference. We haven't had any references in a while, have we? End podcast footnote. You see, over in England, King Charles II began to consider changing the governing apparatus of the American colonies, although he would die before the change could be implemented, and it was left to the Duke of York now King James II, to bring them about. James's creation was the Dominion of New England, which I don't really want to get into much because we've covered it quite heavily already with Massachusetts and Rhode Island, but its effects on New York are certainly worth discussing. Firstly, James ordered the Assembly to disband, and it met for the last time in October 1685. What Dongan was then focused on was primarily military. You'll recall that one of the major reasons for the creation of the Dominion of New England in the first place was to coordinate action between the colonies when dealing with new foreign threats from the Indians and the French. Dongan made moves to expand New York's influence westwards from the Hudson towards the Great Lakes, and he tried to bring the Iroquois under English control 
which sort of works. The Iroquois allowed the English to refer to them as their children, while at the same time asserting their own independence and freedom to do as they wished. They just wanted assistance against the French to the north, and if that meant referring to the English king as some sort of overlord, then lip service was a price worth paying. Conflict broke out in 1687 when the French moved against the Seneca tribe in western New York and created a fort at the mouth of the Niagara River. The English had several options on how to proceed. They could stay out of the conflict, or they could support their Iroquois allies. They chose to do neither of these, instead compromising in a decision that made everything worse. While they encouraged the Iroquois to fight the French, they did the absolute minimum in terms of practical assistance, sending over a bit of ammunition and a couple of allied troops. This managed to cause a great deal of resentment among the Iroquois, whose anti-French feeling began to drop, and did little to help fight the war as the French burned down villages. And it also offended the French directly. The support given was a Cassaspelli, and rumours began to arrive in New York that Albany would be targeted in 1688. Dongan increased the patrols to the north and moved himself to Albany for that winter. The rumours proved false, but Anglo-French relations worsened and the importance of the Iroquois as the power broker in the region increased. When Dongan returned to New York City in March 1688, he was faced with financial problems. The colony didn't have enough money. Trade had been harmed by the conflict and the other colonies wouldn't send fiscal help. In order to pay for the military, Dongan had to raise taxes that the citizens of the colony couldn't afford. Trouble had been brewing for a generation, and the colony was at near boiling point. Then, in mid-1688, word arrived that New York and New Jersey were being annexed into their neighbour, the Dominion of New England, that Dongan was to be recalled, and Andros had been placed in command. The public records were moved to Boston, the tension increased. In the spring of 1689, a rumour reached New York City that a thousand French and Indians were preparing an assault upon Albany. The rumour was false, but that didn't calm anyone down. The colony was a powder keg, just waiting for a match to set it alight. That match came in April 1689 when word reached New York that James II had been overthrown and fled the country, and that William and Mary had seized control. In Boston, the New Englanders revolted and imprisoned Andros. By mid-May, the towns of eastern Long Island were in revolt. While he does not seem to have been involved in starting the revolt, the man it would become synonymous with was Jacob Leisler who I've ever so briefly mentioned before. Leisler was born in Frankfurt in the year 1640 to a Calvinist pastor, and he travelled as a soldier to New Amsterdam when he was 20 in 1660. He married the widow of a wealthy merchant a couple of years later, and he used this capital 
to become very prosperous in trading, as well as a militia captain. He was one of the wealthiest men in the colony, but found himself on the fringes of power rather than the centre. He was much better connected with the Dutch element within New York than the English, and his influence was further diminished as New York got folded into the dominion of New England. As the revolt spread from the Long Island towns, it moved into Queens and Westchester, a town most famous for holding the house of Ted Mosby. On May 31st, 1689, the New York City militia rose up to save the colony, taking the city's fort. Jacob Leisler was commissioned as the captain of the fort, and two months later was made the commander-in-chief of New York. A strong element of the revolt was from the older Dutch settlers who wanted to oust the Anglo-Dutch elite who had taken control over the past 20 years. This is very interesting. Politically, the Dutch New Yorkers identified with the Whigs, who were instrumental in the Glorious Revolution, and England's new king. William III was, of course, Dutch. Just as we experienced with Rhode Island and Massachusetts, this revolution had an awful lot in common with the Glorious Revolution in England. This is how Leisler was able to take the by now familiar approach that his revolution was done in the name of William and Mary, who he proclaimed loyalty to, and that the ousted Lieutenant Governor Nicholson, who had fled to England, was merely a tool of the traitor King James. This was a horrible position for William. We've already discussed the awkward position he was placed in, that to disown the rebels would be to invalidate his own legitimacy, so he was sort of pressured into going along with it. His official response with regards to New York was to say that Lieutenant Governor Nicholson was officially in charge and had the power to control the government. However, as Nicholson was in England, the order was addressed, quote, in his absence, to such as for the time being take care for preserving the peace and administrating the laws of our said province in New York in America. In effect, Leisler was in control. This is where we'll pause the narrative for this week. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember you can find more online. The best place is at History Jamie on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.